Radio Mano Papachango. Hi Chris and fellow tangential listeners, this is Morten from Norway. I just uh, got into work at the Coco Pelli Smart Shop in Amsterdam, uh, listening to the newest Roma on my way here. I work at the Smart Shop, which is the only one that has a trip lounge. So if you want to talk about psychedelics or come into the shop and, uh, and have a trip with us. You're always welcome to the Coco Pelli Smart Shop in Amsterdam. Keep on being awesome, Chris. You two friends. Bye. Hey, Chris. I know you're tangentially thinking funky humans out there listening. What's up? My name's Wade. I am currently riding my motorbike through the back roads and mountain passes uh, here in South Africa. I've taken two months and I've just packed the bike and no plans, just if I see a road I'm taking it and we go for it. Uh, yeah, just want to say, Chris, dude, thanks for the, thanks for putting up the podcast, man. Uh, it's always, I haven't listened to a podcast of yours that I haven't, you know, really dug. So, thanks, Bri. Um, to everyone else out there, I guess my little quick message is just get out there have a look the world's ah, the world's amazing and it's colorful and people are awesome and all the bullshit you see on news and tv right turn it off man go outside have the conversations get your feet dirty the world's we don't know how long we got it but we got it now so why not right all right dr christopher ryan thank you brother keep spreading the love and catch around. Ahoy! Alright, sorry about the sound quality on that, but I figured it was worth it just to have the atmospherics, right? To be on the motorcycle with the dude. Oh, cruising around in South Africa, and he's got it right. Uh, the world is fucking awesome. It's colorful, and people are cool, and you can learn all sorts of things out here in the world that you won't learn sitting at home worrying about the world god knows i spend enough time sitting around worrying about the world but i'm also out in it so you know as he says we don't know how long we'll have it but nobody does we never do we don't know how long we'll have our lives we don't know how long we'll have anything that we think we have it's all just passing through so enjoy it while you can no doubt about it uh, thank you. And if you're in Amsterdam and want to go trip in a shop, I guess that's a place to do it. Say hi to that guy. Uh, let me know how it goes. All right. This episode is with Jim Halama, uh, G-Y-M. Jim is a woman I met because I was looking on Airbnb to rent a place. Uh, had a friend coming in, so we were looking for a, a larger place where we could hang out. And I saw this place, and I just knew from the photos that whoever owned this place was funky. Uh, 
because it was very cool. It was full of all kinds of cool shit, and uh, you could just tell that whoever, whatever intelligence was behind this place had an interesting style. And so I rented the place, and luckily the owner, Jim, was in town and around, and I said, hey, it'd be cool to meet. And she was like, yeah, I'm around, let's meet. And um, yeah, so we ended up hanging out, and I went and she invited us down to her art studio in this little town of uh, Chite, and I saw some of her work, which is phenomenal. She's a really talented painter. Um, And uh, I said to her, hey, you know, I, I just knew this woman had stories, and so I asked her if she'd be interested in being on the podcast and she's like yeah she seems like the kind of person who doesn't say no very often she's she's a yes sayer whatever the opposite she's a yay sayer not a naysayer um which makes for an interesting life as you'll hear she has gone all over the place uh propelled by her curiosity and her open-mindedness and sometimes her desperation and uh, lack of other options. And she has gone from Keith Richards' kitchen to sleeping in uh, unlocked cars on Italian city streets because she was homeless to cruising around North Africa to the back of some guy's motorcycle, cruising around southern Spain. She's worked on movie sets and TV sets and commercial sets. She does um, production design and uh, painting on sets. And, um, yeah, she's awesome. She gave me a copy of her memoir, uh, which is called Zigzag, uh, Flashbacks of a Painter, and it's really cool the way it's written. It's it's just each chapter begins with a painting, a reproduction of one of her paintings, and then there's a little story. It might be a story from her childhood or from her marriage or uh, a work-related thing or a travel thing or whatever. It's just a, a moment that she remembers. And uh, it's awesome. It's a really good book. I really enjoyed it. Anyway, it's available. I saw it was on Amazon. The Kindle version's on Amazon. The paperback was like $200 or something. I I guess it's it's a rare book or something. But I think she's got a bunch of them at her place. So you could contact her directly uh, if you want to have her ship you a book. It's It's small, so it shouldn't be too expensive. But it is being shipped from Spain, of course. Anyway, Jim Halama, super cool woman. Really glad to have met her and... Uh, Yeah, I hope I'll stay in touch with her for years to come. She's awesome. And if I ever buy a house, if I ever have walls, I want to buy at least one of her paintings to put on one of those walls. Uh, She's really, really talented, and and I just love her vibe. Um, So, hope you enjoy this episode. This will be... uh, I'm posting this and scheduling it uh, to go out because I'm going to be on safari when this comes reaches your ear holes. I will be uh, camping, got a safari set up, going out uh, to the Serengeti, and we're going to be camping out, listening to lions roar at night. I guess that's the plan. Uh, Nine days. So I will be out of touch for a while as far as emails and social media and all that shit goes. Um, And right now, as you listen to this, I am probably in the Serengeti somewhere, 
hopefully not being consumed by a lion. But, um, you know, if I die out there, just if these are my last words, uh, I went happy. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, nothing on my bucket list. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling loved. I'm feeling so fucking lucky to be at the center of this community of awesome people of which you are one or several, if you're listening to this and speakers. Um, yeah, I feel really blessed. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. And I really appreciate your attention and and the leverage that your attention gives me. Um, you know, Jim wasn't hard to convince to she's she's a pretty open book, as you'll hear. Um, but sometimes people are only willing to sit down and talk because I can tell them I've got this audience and I've been doing this for 10 years. And, you know, if you give me an hour or two of your time, it'll reach people and uh, and that'll open the door. So I really appreciate you giving me your attention and your leverage. And I especially appreciate those of you who have signed up on Substack uh, at the one and only level. It's not like Patreon where there are all these different levels. It's one of the things I didn't like about Patreon. It's like, well, if you give me five bucks a month, you're my friend. If you give me 10 bucks a month, you're my special friend. Give me 20 bucks a month. You're my brother from another mother. Like, what the fuck? I mean, this is all dividing let's just make it one price you either pay or you don't and if you pay you get some extra shit if you don't you get the free shit that's cool whatever whatever works so on substack it's uh five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year which is like 417 a month or something like that and uh what you get is the free you get the free shit plus you get the paid shit the bonus shit so i uh just uploaded a podcast, the first Toma that I've done in years. And uh, yeah, it's about it's about a relationship I had uh, briefly, maybe two relationships. Another relationship makes a quick appearance. But but essentially, it's about the question of how do you deal with someone who's suffering is part of their journey and you become part of their suffering. So, you know, like like the emails I get from people who say, yeah, I've got this friend. I really love him or her. They're awesome. Um, but I I am not attracted to them. They're not my type, whatever. There's no chemistry. Um, and it, I know that they're suffering being around me, but they say it's cool. It's cool. I'm all right. It's fine. But I can see that they're suffering. So what do I do? Because I don't want to cut them off. That doesn't seem fair. But at the same time, it's really hard to know that I'm hurting them. So that's one manifestation of this. Other manifest manifestations could be. For example, if you know that you are not sexually monogamous and then you meet someone who is and they say, oh, OK, well, I, I'll, I'll work with it. I'll figure it out. I'll be cool with it. And then you can see that they're not cool with it, that they're suffering, but they've said they're cool with it. I mean, this manifests in so many ways. I think the first way it manifested for me was before I went on a my first really long trip um, to India and all that 
in the in the months leading up to it, I, I noticed that all these women were into me that hadn't been before. And in retrospect, I realized it's because I was about to leave. I was preparing to leave. I was I was confronting my fears and putting shit into action. And I wasn't just another dude with a job hanging around. I was a, a dude with a job who was on his way somewhere. And that was more attractive to these women. And anyway, so I, I, I you know, would get involved with with one of the women. And but as the date of my departure approached, I could see that the thing that had attracted to her to me was now causing her suffering. You know, I was excited because I was the one who was leaving and she was looking ahead and saying, OK, in three weeks, this guy's going to be gone and I'm going to be alone. And that sucks. And he's not inviting me to go with him and I couldn't go with him anyway. And so now this thing that was great is now a problem. So this issue manifests itself in many, many ways. And um, so in that tome, I tell a story about a relationship um, where a woman's suffering was actually intrinsic to her survival and how I had to confront my own capacity or incapacity to wrap my head around that. So that's the kind of thing that you get access to if you subscribe uh, monetarily. There's a free subscription and a paid subscription. Paid subscription gets you that, gets you the Walt Whitman unpacking I just did recently about crossing Brooklyn Ferry, one of my favorite Whitman poems. Uh, gets you access to all kinds of special juicy stuff. All right. Thanks for listening. This song was sent to me by a listener. Aaron Atwood is his name. And uh, it's it's called Give It All Away. Follow the words, get the message, give it all away by Aaron Atwood, A-R-O-N, and Atwood is as you would think with two T's. Uh, he's got a Bandcamp page where you can go and uh, download the song. I think it's three pounds or something, or maybe it's pay what you will, I don't remember. But um, Aaron Atwood, give it all away, followed by my conversation with Jim Halama. Catch you on the rebound. Thanks, everybody.
Thank you for doing this. This is, uh, I know this, is this your second podcast? I know you've been interviewed. I, I saw have your... I've done a podcast. I've done um, um, youth, um, you know, um, Martin Glover from the from the um, uh, Killing Joke. He's interviewed me twice um, for my for two exhibitions. Well, once here. Did he do the, the thing you sent me, the YouTube? Um, no, I my a guy who does my webpage, he edited it with me because I just took some, you know, what's that thing when it's fast forward? Um, oh, time, uh, time lapse. lapse. Yeah. So while I was doing them, I just, somebody said you should do that. And so I did. And I put them all together with him. I he's very good. Yeah. He edited my book with me. He did all the graphics and, the, you know, the zip, the code and everything. He's, yeah. he's a bit, uh, he did edit the book um, too much. Or do you say fig fag? Since it's in zigzag, Spain. zigzag. No, but he, you know, there's a thing about the stones in there, and he said, "Oh, don't mention, you know, change the names." And I thought afterwards, I thought, why did I let him do that? Yeah, I, I read a thing once that said you should always write posthumously, and I think about that a lot because I'm sort of thinking about maybe writing some sort of a memoir. And for me, the only thing that really interests me or challenges me is the exercise of being as ruthlessly honest as I can possibly be. Yeah. 
Um, you know, like tell the story of oh, my they're life. They're all true stories, but the na- he's changed my even my daughter's names changed. Yeah, just for legal protection. Yeah, he said, oh, you know, they've got lawyers, and I thought, well, what am I going to say that's so terrible about them? You know, no one's even going to know about my book, right. basically, unless you mention the Stones, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe get some attention. So, did you know them? The I Stones? worked for Keith Richards when uh, Marlon was about eighteen months old, uh, and I was like the cabin boy because they lived in that um, house that burnt down with the thatch roof and the moat round it. Was that in England? Yeah, in England, yeah. West Wittering. And um, I was there for a few, quite a few months and uh, I got fired in the end. But um, for that, I have no idea. Oh, really? Um, no, because they were fighting a lot. Anita and, uh. and Keith, they were arguing all night and she just stormed into my room at eight o'clock in the morning said you can go today I tell you things you don't listen to me you can go and I thought okay and uh, just packed my stuff and and um, mm. they had a greenhouse full of grass mm. and if that were there were holes in the in the top and it was growing through when I first arrived I said wow all that grass in there and he said oh it doesn't work and I thought well, it's got to work so I just grabbed a load and put it under the grill and then um, um, it worked absolutely fine. So every weekend I used to get the weekend off and I'd sneak in there, get a whole newspaper full of it and go and turn my friends on to London because <laughs> they weren't using it. With Keith's weed. <laughs> well, he was a junkie, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I listened to his autobiography uh, in the van. I, I, I don't really read many books because no, I'm I've normally doing I still haven't read it, actually. It's interesting, the autobiography, most of it's read by an actor who oh. has the same accent as him. Oh. I don't know what accent that he, is. He's very technical, apparently. He's, he's very into the sort of the music. Yeah, a lot of it's it. about tuning guitars. Yeah, and, you know, it doesn't really... And the rest of it appears to just be about, like, how he scored heroin in various places. Oh, my God, it was and, my friend that he scored off. Actually, I had a my best friend at school was a junkie at 16 and she was in such bad sense. And then she had a boyfriend who became one. And then um, I, um, they moved, um, Keith and Anita moved them both into the recording studio on their land. So that because they were getting such a huge dose, he used to take them to the chemist every morning and then they'd split the dose that they were getting. And uh, that's how he scored it. Well, when I was there, that's how right, he scored it. Right. Did was there a vibe with Keith? You think that Anita picked up on that? Maybe that was the issue. What was the issue? Like you and Keith had some sort of like Keith was attracted to you. No, he didn't talk to me at all. I don't know if he liked women or I just felt she was my mate. You know, we used to walk the dogs on the beach and we had a great time. And uh, he. Very rarely spoke to me, mm. really. So this was what, an early 70s? 68, 69, oh. just before... Exile on Main Street. Before they moved down to the south, because if they yeah, hadn't sacked me, I probably would have gone down to the south of France, is right. when they sort of went down there. Right. And, um, no, it was great for a time. And, uh, you know, the... the the funny thing is in that um, when I was sacked, I kind of got all my stuff together and walked down the... They had quite a big gardens and property, and I walked to the end, and there was a bus stop literally on the the road. And the bus came along, and I got on, and and um, the, the conductor... Because this was early days, really. They were, they were known, but not as big as they were. And the bus conductor said, 
was that where that Keith Jagger lives? And I went, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Keith Jagger. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when people talk about how, like, Steely Dan as a person. Oh, know? right, yes. Uh, he's yes. good. I like Steely Dan. <laughs> okay, can play guitar. Yeah, wow. That's interesting. So were you, at that point, I mean, I don't know how to, like, I don't want to, like, be chronological, so just wherever we go, we go. But I'm interested in just how... The trajectory of a life, right? We're in this tiny village in southern Spain now. Somehow you got from Keith Richards' moated property in England yeah. to your art studio, beautiful, open, airy, bright space in a tiny, quiet little village yeah. in Spain. A, a lot of things happened, really. <laughs> really? Don't know chronologically. <laughs> um, and then happened. I worked for, was that first? I can't remember whether it was before or after now. Um I worked for Alice Pollock, who used to be with Ozzy Clark, her partner. Mm, who's that? I don't Ozzie know. Clark, a oh. huge designer in the 60s. Oh, okay. I mean, he was super big. Was Do you amazing. mind if I ask when you were born? 1949. 49? I'm 73. Oh, man. I, I guessed significantly younger than that. No, thank you, but I don't... I feel younger than that, but I don't think I look younger than that. But anyway, so weird, isn't it? God, I mean, you know, since I've hit, been here, I've aged a lot because I, you know, work in the desert. I never look after myself. I've never looked after myself, and I've, but you know, been in the desert with no sun cream and just, yeah. you know, since I've been here thirty years, and I've just been in the sun. Yeah. I just stay out of the sun now, but. Um, I think it's done a lot of damage to me, but I love it. You know, I just love it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. This idea of the sun being dangerous is a weird thing. Well, it's dangerous in too much of it. Yeah. You know, I, I it's good to soak it up for like 20 well, minutes. Vitamin D deficiency is a big problem yes, now. Yes, I know. So but I'm actually taking vitamin C because I hardly go in the sun. I just can't C bear or it. D? D. D, yeah, D, yeah. okay. And yeah. C. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same, obviously. Irish oh, skin, yes, you know. Yes, dodgy. Yeah. But, um, but it anyway, feels good. Yeah, well, Alice um, was amazing. She, because um, I, you know, I lived in Chelsea. I was brought up in King's Row, you know, in King's Row, basically, as my street. And and um, she had a quorum, I think it was, down a side street. And I just, you know, you just meet those people as, you know, you meet those people at parties and stuff. And mm. she needed a, she had three children and she uh, needed someone. And so I I went down to stay the night in Marden in Kent, where she lived, and um, to be interviewed by the children because uh, they didn't like... The last one lasted two days. They were How quite... How many kids? Three. Uh. Aged three, five and seven. Uh. And um, so <laughs> I woke up. I woke up and I heard all these whispers around my bed and... Um, um, they were going, is she pretty? You know, what does she look like? And um, anyway, so when when I woke up, you know, we just talked and everything. And by the time I got up, we were like best friends. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and she just used to abandon me with them for a week. You know, I was only 18, 19. Mm. And um, she, um, I used to have to take the little one to school. And, uh, the, no, they had the little boy with me because he was only three. But they were... You know, a handful. They were lovely, but a real handful. And she just, you know, she used to run off and have an affair with Frank Zappa or something for a week or two, and then I'd be left with these children. But I, you know, I, it was fine. Mm. I loved children, but um, if I had to spend a week with three children or Frank Zappa, I think I'd pick the children. 
<laughs> I know but she she's quite a for Gemini. She's like really spicy and really on the edge. Mm. Very, very wiry woman, you know, really energetic, amazing. And then one day she came home and she said, I put your I put your name down for a fashion show in Venice next week. And I said, Christ, what do I have to do? He said, just pretend you're a top model. And it was this huge international fashion show. All the Andy Warhol people were there. It was like a big international, it was a knitwear thing. And um, I'd never worn makeup or anything. And and uh, anyway, so I went and I was luckily with this lovely girl. We shared a room, uh, Karina, and she showed me how to put makeup. Because in those days, you didn't have makeup artists. Mm. It's completely changed. So we were sent to the hairdresser and everything. And, and Karina and I, we had to do two other, because each designer took their own models so she had five or six of us and we were in the theatre for you know all week rehearsing and the suddenly her turn was up and she had to put her models up on the stage and she hadn't organized a, a, a music or anything she just ran off and an hour later came back with the stones record and we had to get on stage to jumping jack flash and she said, just walk around and then freeze, you know. So that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other, we had to do two other designers. So we earned a bit extra money. And um, and it was really good fun. I mean, I went home with, you know, probably £125 or something. In those days, it was bloody fortune. Yeah. You know? So that was good. And then also then for her, she actually put me into it. She was great because she had an ex-husband who was involved in a Pasolini film. Mm. And uh, she said, why don't you write? Uh, they're looking for extras. Why don't you write to him? And just so, and I'd just come back from Italy and I was quite tanned and I looked all right. And I just, um, so I, I got this job as the, and it was the Canterbury Tales, the bawdiest part of the Canterbury mm. Tales. And, um, the Wife the, of Bath. Yeah, I don't know what it was. A it was a scene where this guy is looking, going into a brothel, and he's looking through all the keyholes to find his friend. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these scenes going on, and they were, you know, he he uh, Pasolini got um, extras from building sites in Scotland. I mean, all these guys, these awful looking blokes that I thought, oh my god, what have I let myself? Now I had a nude part, which you get double money for a nude part. And so I um, first day they didn't call me up. And then the second day, this actor, he's a comic actor called Robin Asquith, he came up to me and said, I'm doing my scene with you. And I went, oh, thank God for that. Um, you know, I was just like relieved because he was one of the, the head actors in it. And um, so we spent all day in a barn smoking dope and he was just so funny. I was just in hysterics all day because he just kept me so entertained. And then at six o'clock they called us up and uh, did, did our thing. And they even put a sack between our naked bodies. He's supposed to be on top of me, shagging me. And then he gets off and then goes and gets a coin from his pouch, whatever. And then he puts it in my mouth and sort of says, let's do it again, sort of thing. And um, and that was a scene, you know. And I remember, um, I think we saw it um, when it came out a year later. I mean, if you blinked, you wouldn't see me. Mm. But um, I was looking, I wanted years, years later when I was here, I was thinking, where can I get a copy? That would be just funny to see it, you know. And it's really bad. I mean, no one's an actor. He doesn't really get, he didn't really get mm. normal. And his, the boyfriend who murdered him was in that. 
So, mm. you know, he was murdered by his boyfriend. Oh. Yeah. Did he do Blow Up? Was that him? No, no, no. I, I, can't, name, I can't remember. The name rings a bell, but I can't think of. Oh, he was, yeah, well, he weird. And then, um, i trying to forget, uh, remember what I was saying. Uh, um, oh, the oh yeah. So anyway, so yeah, I asked things. friends in London if they could get me a copy of the Canterbury, mm. and no one could. And then I went into Durkal, my local town, and there was a sort of video renting shop. And what did I see on the foreign film set? Was that? So I Crazy. watched it, and I was the worst actress <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever seen it was just so bad i had no expression on my face you know he was supposed mm. to be and i was just lying there completely stoned and not really with a burlap bag on you too i mean I know, come on how are you supposed to be turned on well by i didn't wasn't you know that kind of a person anyway i was very backward sexually but it, anyway it was funny he was just so funny <laughs> so wait, you weren't that kind of person what kind of person well, were i was a very late developer uh yeah and i didn't enjoy sex at the beginning yeah. So um, it wasn't anything sexual going Is it because of you had negative experiences? Yeah, I had or? a negative. In Italy, yeah. I had a very negative experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, that'll ruin it. Took years, years for me to enjoy it. But anyway, you know, I learned a yeah. lot in Italy. God, they're liars. Mm. You know, I was like... On, I was sleeping in cars. I was opening Cinquecentos, and they were the only ones that would open, and I'd sleep in there. had my money stolen. And um, three months of sleeping in cars, and every single... I knew, and, and my sister, who was living there with her boyfriend, introduced me to this gigolo, this young, gorgeous Italian, and we went to a nightclub, and they just abandoned me with him. And um, he was... I was saying, can you take me home? And he wouldn't take me home. Then he took me home and they wouldn't let me in. I hadn't spoken to my sister since. And I had to go back to his place. And then he deflowered me. And it was just horrible anyway. And he just turned over and went to sleep. And then the next day he dumped me in Piazza Signoria. And I was hanging out with the local urchins, sharing cigarettes and stuff. And then I saw him that afternoon walk by with, a, with his arm around another girl. That uh, that afternoon and and smiling and laughing with her and that really did it for me. I was really broken, really, from that. And it took me three months to you know go back to England. What what took you to Italy? Um, well, I worked in a hotel. I just wanted to go. Really, I just, I worked in a hotel for um, um, uh, what was it three months? Two months. Um, I was earning five pound two and sixpence a week, seven mm. day week, taking the teas, doing the breakfast, serving the lunches, serving the dinners, uh, and you know falling into bed at eleven o'clock at night for five pound two and six a week. And then after two months, I just um, I saved all my money and just got on a train to Italy. And how old were you? Seventeen. So I was still a virgin at seventeen. Was that unusual in your... Sort of. Well, not really. I mean, people in those days, you know, they didn't go to bed till they were married a lot yeah. of the time. So for me, it was some people, I don't know, average. It was, it was I guess it's early. I don't know. 
But I was very naive, you know, because I was brought up by my father. And any time I asked him a question, he'd say, I'll tell you when you're older, because my father was like my grandfather. He was 49. He was born in 1900, my father. Wow. So he was 49 when he had me. Right. And so he was like an old man. He was wonderful, wonderful father, but he didn't know how to handle two little girls, you know. And your mother was younger than him? 20 years younger. 20. Yeah, she, you know... She died, and so he was. He brought us up, and he did. He was wonderful, my father. But only I realised it afterwards. You know, um, he was amazing. You know, and he'd say, you know, um, I think you should learn how to play tennis and stuff like that. He said, because if a young man invites you to play tennis when you're older and you can't play, that would be terrible. So we learned to riding, tennis, you know, everything. He said, I think you should mix with, learn to mix with every type of person. He was wonderful, you know. He introduced us to a good whole array of things. And he was British. Very English, yes. And your mother was, was Polish. Polish. And where did they meet? Apparently um, after the war, because I think her boyfriend was killed as a pilot or something, and then she worked at the uh, um, the Polish embassy in Paris, and I think he met her there. My father was a lieutenant colonel in the, you know, he did, I mean, he was too young. He was 14 when the war started, so his birthday, I think, um, was on the 15th of November, and the war ended on the 11th, and he didn't get his commission to be a soldier, so he was kind of disappointed, but he, and he was only just... Young enough to at thirty nine, he um, they thought he might be too old to be a soldier, but he he was brilliant. So he was too young to be a soldier. So in the, in the first end, World nearly War. too old and for then, the second one. But he, what did he do in World War Two? Oh, he did um, transport. Um, he used to move whole. What do you call them? You know, all the jeeps over to France. I mean, he was in charge of mm, all the vehicles. The logistics. Yeah, the logistics, and um, he then he worked for Ford. You know, uh-huh. he was at Dagnum Motors, um, you know, for years afterwards. So he met your mother in, in Paris, Paris after he, World War Two. Yes, right, yes. Right. I know very little because when she died, he never spoke of her again, and I don't know very much about her. Mm. You know, it was very difficult, and I was very introverted, so I didn't ask questions. I was not. I've never been an, a question person. I don't ask enough questions. I've realised that in my life, but. Um, Anyway, whatever it is, he was fabulous, you know. He was um, so kind and he was a Buddhist, actually. He believed, really? Yeah, he believed in reincarnation. He believed in fairies. He was brought up in Ireland because they sent him to Ireland. I'll tell you who's letting the flies in is bloody youth. He comes to my art class and he opens all the windows. I said, can you shut the windows? The model doesn't want flies all over. And he will not listen. It's just now I've got flies in here now. I never have flies. <laughs> well... I don't know if people can hear the flies landing on the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. What, had your mother been ill or was she it was a sudden She was an alcoholic. Uh, I mean, she was serious. She was banned. My father banned her from all the pubs locally. She used to go off and sell her, try and sell her fur coat for a bottle of gin. Mm-hmm. And we'd come home from school and she'd be lying, literally lying in the gutter. And we'd just step over. You just kind of get used to it. It's quite frightening how you how you just yeah. get used to something like that, you know. Earlier, you were showing me some of those photographs and talking about her and her sisters, and 
like just the time and place where they were born, it just sounds like they must have been so traumatized by the war. Yeah, well, they were lucky because they because they were dancers. They had people in high connections that got them out. Right, but they know. probably lost a lot of family. Yes. And yeah, but were well, they I Jewish? met my dad. Pardon? Were they Jewish? No. No. So they just got out. They to just get got out because yeah. they felt there was something really bad happening. I remember yeah. a lot of people, I'm sure. But um, no, my grandmother, my Polish grandmother, came to London, and I met her. And then I went to stay one night with her, and I went back to Poland to, for a visit. And she was amazing. She was like bl- practically blind, and um, she lived on her own. And she and then I was told if I took a suitcase full of brine nylon clothes, she'd give me. That's what they wanted in Poland. So I went down to the docks in London and I borrowed £10 and I bought I bought so much stuff, Bry Nylon, and I filled my suitcase and then she gave me the equivalent of about £150 worth of Zloty. Mm. And so I, and then you're not allowed to, you weren't allowed to take it out of the country. So I just bought, I had a stall in Kensington Market and I, um, I just filled it up with, you know, it was just, the, you know, um, peasant shirt, embroidered peasant, so 60s stuff, mm. you know, embroidered uh, sheepskin stuff. And it was great. We took it back to London and sold it. But she was like the queen of the black market, my grandmother. Huh. She was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you had to be, you know, be resourceful. Yeah, uh, yes. But um, and my aunt was amazing. She was just you know she had red carpet treatment wherever she went. She was big star in Poland. So um, and I just I just um, I disappeared for a week because this boy turned up. I was I, I'd only been there one or two nights and I was sleeping in the living room on the sofa, and this boy came in this long haired bearded guy and I you know and he said. Um, you know, do you want to join? It was like, firstly, the board, I said, well, we can't smoke here because my aunt's quite straight in that respect. And as we were leaving the the house, he said, who's that woman? And I said, she's my aunt. And he said, well, she's my aunt too. And he took me to his parents' house and we both had the same photo, an old photo, family photo, the same one. Mm. And I'd never known about this guy. He must have been a little sort of distant cousin or something. And then he took me to these this flat on the outskirts of Warsaw that were all squatters. And I had a, an ounce of dope with me, I took with me, and I turned them all on and they were like in heaven. And then when I left, I bought them, you know, with all the money I had left over, I just bought them loads of food, shopping, so they could live. And anyway, I, and my aunt, when I got back to her place, she was in bed with a, you know, having a nervous breakdown because I disappeared and she was responsible for me. Uh, because I didn't have a mum, right. I just, just did what I wanted, right. you know. And she was really suffering and I felt really terrible because I didn't even think about it, you mm. know. Just disappeared. How old were you then? I was 18. Uh, but yeah. uh, that carpet coat I was wearing, I met the, the other aunt that I'd never met, Zizi. They were really good names, Punya Loda Zizi. And my mama was Anusha, but she, I think she was called Helena, Helenka or something. And um, um, so I went and she lived in Zakopane, which is right in the mountains. And um, she lived in bed. She was wearing a, a, a silk white pyjamas and she was living in bed and she had a bottle of vodka on her side and her little husband was running around doing stuff for her. And I had this carpet coat that I bought off someone in the market and um, as I put it on to say goodbye, 
she kind of just put her hands up and sort of like say stop and she got out of bed and rummaged, she went up to her wardrobe and took a box out from top of the wardrobe, opened it and it was this huge Cossack hat and she just put it on my head and went, that's better. <laughs> she was amazing. I loved uh, her, loved cool. her. Is that the last time you saw her? Yeah, they're, they're all dead now. These, uh, but yeah, I met at least I met her, you know. Yeah. Do you have memories of your mother? Very few. You know, I used to wash her in the bath. She used to let me wash her in the bath. And um, no, I used to read her letters. She used to get. She used to have a visitor on a on a motorbike with a sidecar. This Polish guy used to come in the daytime, and he's obviously an old friend. And uh, he uh, always brought halva with him. And um, very, very little, you know, she didn't, I don't think she spoke much English. She was the one that was responsible for sending us to the French lycée because she spoke French. And I was so grateful to that because it was such a great school. Hmm. It was just so amazing. It was all, you know, it was all the ambassador's children and it was quite posh in those days. Yeah. Uh, but my father couldn't afford it after it. I was, I'd take my O-level. I mean, I had to leave at 16 because he couldn't afford the, the fees anymore, the two of us. Uh, but it was, you know, that we had the whole playground, the whole world in our playground. Mm. You know, we had the Brazilian twins, and, yeah. you know, and people used to come in the middle of a term, the Yugoslavian girl would come because her father had moved to London. And it, I mean, the playground, I didn't really even pr- appreciate it then. When I think back of the whole world was in my playground. Does that have anything to do with you living so long in Spain, do you think, that you just sort of see the world as accessible? Yeah, well, I came here in 1970. I went to live in Marbella for eight months and um, just always wanted to come back. I just loved the lifestyle. I loved the weather. I loved everything about it. I was living with this Australian guy who was about 35 and he showed me all Andalusia, Ronda, when Ronda was just like twinkle. There were no, there was hardly any electricity. It was, mm. you know, it was Franco Spain as right. well. Very and poor. Very poor, but, you know, brilliant. No ruined, no, no plastic tables, no plastic signs, nothing. It was absolutely mm. basic and beautiful. And so I just, I just loved it. I just wanted to come back and live here. So I did, you know, came on a 10 day holiday with my boyfriend and, just asked somebody to show me a little house and uh, the little house next to Camelstock was where I lived 15 years and it was the first house I looked at and I just knew. I stood in the courtyard without even going inside and I knew I was going to live there and I lived there hmm. 15 years. Loved it. Have you had that experience before where you, you just show up somewhere and feel like my life needs to happen here for um, for some time. Well, that did, but I don't, you know, I haven't really been to a country where I think I want to live here. Yeah. I feel safe here. I feel, I never feel frightened. I mean, I can walk in the dark wherever and I never feel threatened. I never feel, and I love Europe because it's, you know, I've, I went to, mm-hmm. we went to Bali two or three times with my another Sicilian boyfriend I had and, and I, he was thinking of getting a house there, but I don't like countries where you have to barter for everything. You know, the newspaper, my God, they used to, ridiculous price every morning, you know, and you have to spend 15 minutes bartering to get a <laughs> bloody newspaper. In Bali, you know? really? Yeah. Wow. And India the same. I always, yeah. I mean, I loved India, but you always feel you're walking away and they're laughing behind your back mm. as a tourist, obviously. Yeah, there's definitely a, a, what's the word, like a conflictive 
element to the yes. relationship where you know there's a local price and a price for you. Yeah, it's I know, like, and you can never fit in properly, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. I, I feel the same. When I first came to Spain, I was on my way somewhere else. It was a whole, whole thing. And I got robbed in Barcelona and had to wait a few days for a new passport. And just in the, the few days that I was waiting, someone offered me a job and I met a woman I liked and things started. I put that there. So oh, is you, it for you don't, me? Yeah. So you Sorry. don't need to worry about okay. the noise. Um, when things just started falling together and... Uh, and the longer I stayed there, the less I wanted to leave or the more I wanted to stay, I should say. And it felt like even though this will never be my culture, this culture makes more sense to me than the one I grew up in. I know. You see, I never felt comfortable in London. I love London, you know, in the 60s and King's Road. I was right in the heart of it. But that, the English side, you know, I adore my father, but his family pretty boring. Whereas my Polish side, I mean, I love, you know, my grandfather was a trapeze artist in the circus. Oh, really? You know, they're like come from circus stock, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and um, far more fascinating to me. Yeah. But England, there was that kind of, you know, that withdrawn, I mean, I was like withdrawn, you know, I was around people. My father, we used to sit in silence every mealtime. He didn't know how to communicate with us, two little girls, and he's like already, you know, he's all 60, 70, I was 65 when I was still just at home, and um, there was no communication. And and here you go into the local doctor and, you know, you go into a waiting room in England, no one says anything. They're all just chatting away. Yeah. You're standing in a queue, they're chatting away. They'll just talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. You know, I and love they're laughing that. a lot. I love it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, they're very raw here. You see, yeah. you know, Italy, that experience in Italy, I would love to have gone to Italy and have the food there is so much more my thing. Mm. I don't really like the food much around here. It's not particularly brilliant. But, um, uh, well, out anyway in restaurants. But um, um, there's there's an honesty here which I absolutely love. You know, they're raw. They're more raw. And uh, the Italians, I always think of playing a game or they're, they're a bit superficial in ungeneralising. Yeah. So your father fascinates me because I'm seeing this image of this man you're describing as very withdrawn and non-communicative and, and noble in many ways, but um, not a live wire by any no. stretch of the imagination, who meets this wild, beautiful, yeah, young tiny Polish, little thing. He was tall and she was tiny. 20 years younger, younger. than him. I know. In a time of trauma both personally yeah. and, and globally and I mean for him to marry into that family is a big move for a guy but like that. But also I think she I don't know I don't know the circumstances but she I think she was looking for a father figure from this boyfriend who'd been killed I think she was looking for a father yeah. figure and we lived in Isha which is outside of London until I was three mm. I mean she was miserable because she didn't know anything she was like in suburbia with no friends. And didn't speak much English. No she didn't and then she was drinking she started drinking right and then um you know, she and I think she woke up one day and and saw she had two little babies and wasn't happy with the man she was with. You know, he wasn't very sexy, my yeah. dad at all. And she was They'd probably just bedrooms, trying you know. to survive. You know, yeah. like the trauma that she'd been through. You know, and Loda, who used to we see Loda more than anyone else in that family, and uh, she she told her to leave my father. 
And so she, I think she confronted him, said she wanted to leave and my father broke down and told her she couldn't. And then she died about within a week. You know, she choked on her own vomit. And I found her after school when I came home. I always used to sneak into her bedroom and it used to, her bedroom stank of gin and vomit. And it was a real, I mean, it was so beautiful, her bedroom. It all sat in and the dressing table, her brushes and so feminine. And mm-hmm. and yet it was a doomy, the most doomy room. And when when she died and we kind of, um, you know, my sister, because I shared a room with my sister and I couldn't stand my sister. We fought all day. We were tearing each other's hair out on the floor all day long. We just didn't connect at all. And she wanted my mother's bedroom and I said, Bloody, I would never sleep in there ever. And I had my little, I had a cool little bedroom which connected to the kitchen and then it connected, I could go down the hall to the bathroom and all my friends used to come in, we used to smoke dope in my room and I'd make them cups of tea without waking my father up. Well, think thought I wouldn't wake him up. And I had a window that I'd climb out and get up uh, in the backyard and get up to the street and go out for the evening and come back. And then I'd get back into bed just because he used to make us a cup of tea every morning, my father, to wake us up nicely. And I thought that was brilliant what he did. And I used to get back with all my clothes on just in time because I could see him making the tea <laughs> in the window. I get, get in the window and boom, and, and he never caught me, ever, ever. Do you think he intentionally <laughs> didn't catch you? No, no, he would have said something. Really? And he knew, you know, he knew what I was up to in the bedroom. And he used to he come in in his really baggy underpants and throw everyone out to smells like a Singapore high street. <laughs> <laughs> Singapore. He knew, you know, he knew, but he never said anything. Uh, yeah. I just thought he was brilliant, you know. I was hanging out with some, you know. Isn't it interesting how lives work out? Like, it's like there are these layers of communication. There are the words that are said, the words that are unsaid, the the communication that's happening beneath consciousness yes. even, you know, the, just the sort of energetic resonances that are happening. Yeah. Well, it's, do you feel like there's this concept of generational trauma? I don't know if you're familiar with this. Like if, if a person suffers from a famine, their grandchildren are more likely to be obese. Oh, wow. Even if they're adopted and, and raised by a family where there's no connection, there's no connection other than through genetics. Right, and they don't know about it. They don't know anything about it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. No, because I met this woman, um, God, what was her bloody name? She was a a madame in Holland. She's famous. She wrote a book. She was born in a concentration camp, and she is enormous. But that's because she was born in a concentration camp, so she knew about, you know, the Mm. famine. She was, um, oh, what was she called? She's quite famous. She wrote a book on um, on it all. On being her her life. Her life as a, a madame, you know. Right. And she, my one of my really old friends. He used to work for her, and um, you know, he she used to have S and M parties, and he used to be a great cook. And he, she sort of had him in a shed in the garden, living in there. And he was a junkie at one point because he she never paid him. She gave him a motorbike, and she. Gave him a good life, but he couldn't get away because he didn't have a penny. Mm. She had him like that. And she used to dangle. She used to leave her 
her will lying about so they could see their name in it. And mm. it was like dangling a carrot and she always kept changing her will anyway. So, you know, anyway, he finally got away. God, what's her name? It's really annoying. I can't remember names anymore. Well, it's funny that that's how pimps, uh, one kind of pimps, keep the women around. They give them not, what they need yes, but no money. I know. Yeah. I've always had a, an amazing fondness for women of the night whores because when I was in Italy and I was out on the streets you know sleeping in cars um, it was always the whores the better word um, they used to look after me you know they'd let me sleep in their bed while they were working I used mm. to meet them in these pizza open night all night pizza places and they'd say you can sleep in my bed and in the morning I'd get up when they were going to bed and they were always really kind to me because they didn't want me to end up they could see my innocence I was very innocent very naive and um, they looked after me. Mm. Uh, and I had that in Spain, had that in Almeria. I used to hang, I always used to hang out in the port areas where all the prostitutes were. And, and I always put myself in kind of difficult positions without realizing it. I liked the, the, the fullness of the life down there, you know, the sailors and the halls and the bars. And, and, but I always got myself into, you know, dangerous situations. Uh, without knowingly doing it, just loving that area. Mm. I mean, Spain was amazing in the in the sixties. You know, I used to go to a Formentera and Ibiza a lot, and hang out in bar in the port in Barcelona and the port in Malaga. I used to beg actually. I used to do little drawings and um, sit. There's this lovely avenue of trees with lots of shade in near the port in. Uh, Malaga, and I used to put una peseta para mirar. So just to, to see a pen, they had to give me, and I used to have enough money to get a pension every night mm. just from the little drawings I used to do. People give me five, maybe. But it was so cheap. You could you could have 100 pesetas and get a meal. Um, you know, um, I can't even remember how much a pension was. So cheap to live there. A glass of wine was six pesetas. You know, it was really, really... Quite easy to live here. Still is in a way. Yeah, I mean it. So it's changed a yeah. lot, obviously. But one of the things I love about this country is so much of it is accessible to everyone. Yes, you know, like there's the, no class system here. Either. It doesn't I love seem to that. be. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the buses, the metro, like all those things are kept accessible yeah, to to everyone. True. Yes, and, and eating so much, out is the, apparently the country that people eat out the most. Yeah, and it's cheap. It's like cheaper. tapas, you get a glass of wine here. I know, you can uh, live on three glasses of wine. I used to, when I first came yeah. here, I was drinking and I don't drink anymore, but you could have dinner on three glasses of wine, you know, if yeah. you go to the right tapas bar. Right. Because some of them really, because it's all family run. Yeah. No one's getting any wages and they're just dishing out this. And especially if one of them's a fisherman, you know, I've been to fish bars where the tuppers they give you a platter of fish just for one glass of wine. I mean, I couldn't believe how much they give you. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a mystery how they stay in I business. I don't know. Mother's <laughs> in the bloody kitchen cooking. I guess. Sister and all that. Yeah, and the building's been paid off for three generations, so they're yeah, not paying yeah, rent. You know, and there's they're no very mortgage. generous people as well. I mean... Yeah. You know, the take a lot of them are taking the. I mean, you know, when the Chernobyl thing happened, all the all the women, the old women around here, they had a spare bedroom. You know, they had a, a Russian in there, um, coming to just get some clean air. You know, and their radiation level would go right down. Then they had to go linking back to Russia, and it would go up again. But every year, 
I met her. I've got a really good Russian friend who who used to do that every year, and she married a Spaniard uh, so she could stay here and then send money back to him. She's mm. really kind, lovely, really kind, lovely woman. So you, it's, it sounds like you're talking about hanging out in the ports and you know the with the whores and the fishermen and the sailors and all this. Like you're attracted to this kind of. Uh, you know the downtown. Yeah, scene, I like the, the I like uptown. the underdogs. I do yeah. like. I'm not into hanging out with rich people or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't appeal to me. They're, it's they're, not real. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, it's like something I'd never wanted to be rich or famous. Right. Never. I couldn't live with myself if I was that rich. I couldn't. Live, I mean, I'd give it yeah. away, so then we'll be rich anyway. Right. But right. and fame just. Frightens the life out of me. <laughs> no, it does. I would like, I'd hate to be centre of attention every time yeah. somebody, you go out or whatever. And then you lose who you are in the end, I think. I mean, you know, it's just. Yeah. You become what people expect you to be. Yeah, and You're you have to keep up this that. image all the time. It's yeah. awful. So it's not on my list at all. You spend time in the US? Yeah, I, I um, when I was living with this, um, this, guy for six years he had all these american clothing shops called meanies they're from from babies up to we used to do oshkosh and every make of american clothing it was a really cool shop i mean it was they were queuing up on a saturday and everything had six shops and i used to do the windows and manage them and whatever and then um he he replaced i don't know this he threw me out one day i don't know why actually he just said oh you know, I, he was arguing with me in the morning and I said, oh, I haven't got time for this. We'll talk about it later. And just, I've, got to get, I've got to open the shop. And he said, you're not working for me anymore. I've replaced you or something like that. And I thought, OK. And then uh, and I, I was homeless and jobless all in one go. And then I was walking down King's Road and I knew this lovely, um, this these two women who had um, English knitwear. They used to get little old ladies all around England knitting this old-fashioned knit and they opened a shop in LA and they asked because they knew how good I was in meanies they asked me if I'd go and open it for them so I went to LA first of all I went to stay with my best friend in um uh, who lived in Los Osos near San Luis Obispo mm. and I stayed with her a month just to get myself back into swing and I bought this amazing 1961 Pontiac Bonneville so I cruised into LA in my Bonneville <laughs> felt really ready for the job and uh, and I just opened this show it was great actually it was really good you know and, and what year are we talking we are talking 1980 it was the year John Lennon was killed uh, and when I Two, one, no, 80. Eight, oh, I think 80. it's 80, isn't it? I think 80, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah so wow. Yeah, and so, and then my boyfriend who kicked me out, he came to get me and bring me back to England, and we drove right across America. And, and I you went with him? I stupidly, you yeah, fucker. because I was actually in love with him. He was such a horrible man. I was so in love with him, and as soon as I fell out of love with him, I didn't even like him. That's how bad it was. Was, what is that? I don't know. I just don't how know. How can you be in love with someone who's not a good person? Because I was person. infatuated. It was a sexual thing anyway. But um, he was really evil. He used to, he just he was so mean. And I was, I was in that, I was still very introverted at that time. And I was, I met him, 7777 was our first anniversary. So I was mm. only, you know, 36 or something. Was I? 
27. And you have one daughter? One... I have one daughter. And no other kids? No, I was, I was giving birth. I said, never again. <laughs> <laughs> it was awful. Can 18 you... hours but of don't pain. don't all women say that and then most forget No it. way. I swore to myself, never again. Yeah. Um, no, I just, it wasn't. <sighs> and this guy wasn't her father? Yeah, this guy. Oh, he is. Which guy? Oh, no, ten. No, he had three children from... He had five children from two different marriages. He didn't even like children. I mean, he didn't really like my daughter. I was in... I had a terrible time with him because he didn't... You know, she moved in with us for a bit, but he was so horrible. I don't know what was wrong with me. I just don't know how I put up with that. Six years I was with him. Mm. And then when I left, I thought, I'm never going to ever let anyone treat me like that ever again. And it took me five years to get over him. And when I came out of that five years, I was just like me who I am now. Mm. You know, I just sorted it all out in my head mm. on my own. I was with my daughter in a council flat. We were homeless for two years, sleeping on people's sofas. How old was she? She was seven, seven. I was, you know, I had to get to school, try and work. I was learning how to do special effects and I was decorating houses. And well, this is L.A. or? No, no, in London, London. London. So but, you went to L.A. to open this place. Yeah, and then but then I'd all, brought you this back. is before I had silver ah. in L.A. Um, uh, hang on, what am I talking about? God, I get so confused. Yeah, I do no, too. no, she was, she was... She was um, eight. She had her eighth birthday in LA. I was. I left her with my best friend, who I grew up next door to, and she couldn't have children. And I said, "Do you want to have a practice run?" <laughs> <laughs> and she was so delighted. She adored Silver. And um, yeah, get rid of that bastard. Um, she was brilliant. So she was four months with my friend. I used to go back on weekends and stuff like that. And. Um, I think more people should do that. Yeah, I know. And then, you know what happened? She got pregnant. She adopted two boys. Sorry. She adopted two boys and then got pregnant. She was trying too hard, I think that's what happened. She was trying too hard to get pregnant and couldn't. And then finally she she got pregnant. So she did have a practice run. She wasn't very good at it, though. She had these two adopted boys and they've been given her the worst time she's ever had in her life. Terrible. Mm. Really terrible what she's gone through. It's a very tricky business, adopting. Well, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that sort of generational trauma, right? You don't know what's happened in someone's family. You don't know what, what where they come with. from. You don't yeah. know who you're dealing with, yeah. you know. One's happily married and the other one is um, a mental case and he, they can't do anything with him. And they, in Spain, they don't have the right hospitals to, to diagnose him or treat him and she's really suffering with him. You know, he set himself on fire. He got thrown out of every school. Mm. He's just... And he's a genius mm. at mending motor cars and stuff. Mm. You know, they have this... A lot of people have this, if you're yeah, autistic savant. or something, this yeah. kind of genius side of them that right. no one will allow him to, you know, develop in a mm. way. I find it um, quite sad, you know. So you said after this experience with this guy, the six difficult years and the uh, sort of humiliation and 
confusion, you emerge from that as you are now. Yes. So you were how old then? Th- was 30, this? Um, th- um, 
retired just before the first lockdown. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me because I've worked so hard. When my mum died, from the age of eight, you know, we were doing the washing, the ironing, the trying to keep the house together for my father, you know. And um, I've worked really hard physically all my life. I'm really, you know, do, working on film sets is like 18-hour day. You know, the other, I did one a couple of weeks ago and I wasn't really supposed to, but, whoa, is it hard physically, you know. And I use, I keep thinking I'm much younger than I am and it's t- it takes it out on me now. Yeah. I need days to recover. So can we talk a little bit about your development as an artist yeah. uh, where when and where and how did that well, start it's a funny one um i i um i went to art school when i was 17 just for three months and left i didn't i found it a bit antiquated in those days i did, I did fashion because they wouldn't let me do a um, foundation course because i went in after the term had begun and just they let me in and then um uh, I did, you know, I did little bits and bobs, but really when I came down here, well, also working on film sets, um, I knew a guy, a friend of mine in London, and he became an art director. So he got me on the, the circuit. I was lucky because it's who you know sometimes, isn't it? And I was doing special effects on sets. We were doing a lot of pro- pop promos in those days. A lot of what? Pop promote when when videos came out uh, with with records right pop groups they had videos suddenly so right. we were doing all them working all night you know and really exhausting and very not so well paid and but i really learned a lot and then also at the same time i met this um guy who i knew when i was 16 a, a canarian guy he did he decorated thatcher's house and he was top special effects but that was working with oil paints Film sets is quick drying, so it's, you know, water-based paints. Anyway, he taught me marbling, wood graining. I met him, actually, Silver, a friend, because we didn't have any money when we were a bit, you know, at one time, and this guy gave her a party in the, in a wine bar, and I went upstairs for air and bumped into Oscar, and he, he said, oh, do you want to help me tomorrow? I'm doing a job, and um, I said, yeah, I'd love to, and uh, I just picked it up so quickly. I just had it, you know. And I, so that was your entree to art, doing the... Well, doing special, decorating people's houses and right. stuff. But this friend who's the art director, I got onto the film circuit. So I was doing both at the same time. Right. So it wasn't one decorating a house, I was doing film set. And uh, and then basically, I did, you know, I've been doing it for 40 years. Mm. And um, in London, I did it, you know, there's a lot of work in London. And then I came here... And one of the art directors I worked for in London came to Spain to do a job, and he said, "If you need a good painter, Jim's your, your man." And um, <laughs> so I got onto it here. And I tell you what, I've been so lucky because there aren't any decent painters. You know, there haven't been. And I've been sent to Barcelona, to Madrid. I mean, all over, haven't they got any painters in Madrid or Barcelona? They've got film studios there, but they. And so I worked with this amazing team, mainly from Seville, and. Um, you know, we we just knocked through them, and we were very we're we're a really good team. You know, really top quality. Carpenters. Do you work with particular directors, or no, just no. hire out? Basically, so. they're production companies here in Fuengirola and Malaga, and so then I mean, the last three big jobs I did was for um, Bud Light. Oh, okay. America. So you're doing commercial commercials, work, right, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I do, yeah. It started off with pop promos, but you know, it's all commercials. But I did do a Ridley Scott one, um, that terrible film he made, um, <laughs> Exodus. Uh, didn't see it's it. It's not very good. Well, anyway, 
But it was a month in Almeria painting yeah. carts and stuff and yeah. whatever. Um, but mainly, yeah, mainly commercials, which is better because it's it's a quick hit, like, right. you know, 10 days, good money. Films are half, they pay you half the money. Mm. And you work from nine to five or something and it drags on and on for months. I don't want to do that. Didn't want to go away from home for nine months or anything. Because I used to have lots of animal dogs and cats and stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just picked up both sides of it. So I'm very, you know, I, if they want something, I, I have to quickly work out how I'm going to do it with very little materials, you know, um, so I can think standing up with paint, you know. Mm. Well, you have to on film jobs. Right. right. You know, they suddenly throw an extra, what they call a flat, don't they? It's another wall that you've done the whole set and then they add another wall and you've got to just carry on with it. So I always got... 17 different colours on the go in the desert, you know, with sand blowing all over my paint. And mm. they have no idea how difficult it is to keep the paints wet in boiling heat mm. and sand. And, and uh, but I, you know, they call me Super Jim on sets. When I turn up, they go, Super Jim! <laughs> <laughs> and so you come here and you paint your own work. Now I do my own work, do yeah. You, is it like, a, it like a pleasure to take your time it's or do you need. still move fast? I, I just need to do it. If I don't paint for a couple of weeks, I start getting itchy and really kind of frustrated. It's just, just it's an addi addiction. Is it always paint or, or could you scratch that itch with writing poetry or I, some other creative outlet um well that writing thing i did that book ten, over 10 years ago i think i've got seven stories for the next one but no mainly it's painting and and um hat i like working with my hands mm. you know. have you done sculpture i did a bit of sculpture when i was about 14 at my godmother's she used to live in cornwall and there was this wonderful man called bill featherstone and he used to make totem poles <laughs> and he had his little shed and i spent a lot of time with him and he taught me how to carve you know yeah. to twist a piece like do like a you know did simple stuff but um it's hard work yeah. sanding it's a lot of sanding yeah. <laughs> you know yeah but it's nice um, I've, I wanted to, I took a course in uh, welding because I used to think, oh, I can make some amazing furniture with old bits of metal. Mm. I love that idea, but it's just very heavy work. I couldn't deal with the, the mask and the eyes, always looking at it when it's so bad for your eyes. Yeah. And it's, it, once you get all the machinery and everything, you just have to use it because basically, why have you got it? And it, I don't want to do that permanently. I just thought I'd try it. We stood outside here. I had a, about five people doing a course out in the lane there. Uh, but it wasn't my thing. But at least I tried, and I tried pottery. I did a course in pottery because I've been told I've got potter's hands. But, um, no, I love the paint and I'm just trying to get better you know i know i'm not there yet but i just um i'm very disorganized and i don't even know what i'm going to paint when i start something it's just it just comes out mm. and i'm loving all the stuff that's coming out of my head more than the you know the figurative stuff i can do quite easily and i do like doing it a bit i like to i just like to play with every single type of painting you know and galleries don't like you because you're inconsistent. Yeah, they just mm. see ten different artists on the wall, and and uh, I don't care. Isn't that funny how different 
endeavors either require more focus or less like your your daughter was a model for years you said i used to live with models and one of the things i realized is that it's not just physical beauty it's that you can look so many different yeah. ways yes so it's the opposite of what yeah. you're talking about where that that's really a good thing to be a successful but model they, you know there's so rigid the art world is so rigid that's what i don't like about it it's um the, you know these rules like why can't i paint like this one day and that like that mm. it's how i feel every morning i wake up right. i feel different every morning yeah but they want to market you yeah they want you know so, uh, you know yeah. it's got to a point now that i don't care if i don't do exhibitions i just i sell more from my my place than anywhere yeah i do an exhibition it's a waste of money a lot of time and effort and it's um is is it worth it yeah you know for me well now with the internet you know you don't really need a space no i know i sold one i sold one in january to start um through sarchi and my god did it take it took three months to get paid and i got half what i you know i put it up a bit because i thought well, they'd take and then you know, i got Less than what I would have sold it downstairs. Right. And I just was very disappointed with them, actually. Yeah. It's yeah. so complicated, and I'm not good on the uh, on the computer. All these artists, they're somehow good on computers because they do computer art as well. Right. And right. I'm useless. I mean, I do my emails, and you know, but I'm no good on it. I just hate the computer. You, you just need a millennial. Everyone needs a millennial to, like, do their computer Yeah, I need work. a secretary. <laughs> you know, I've got this girl to spend a week just getting my art world together, yeah. putting it in one box and organising me, because I'm not very organised. You know? That... I keep looking over at that painting of the water glass. That's so beautiful. I love that. I'm that is so beautiful. Gone, yeah. And I don't normally do that kind of detail stuff. I love that. And what what uh, would you sell something like that for? Um, eight hundred or something. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm going to take a photo of that. And I uh, love it. It's just I had that glass on the bar, looking through the window and that building. It was just perfect for me. Yeah, and I love it's it's so striking because the glass, the crystal and the angles of the glass are so sharp and defined. But what's coming through the water is all, all misty, like yes. a Monet kind of yeah, reflection. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, it's a I was pleased beautiful with that, piece. Actually. Yeah. I sold the watercolor of that, but it's not as good, actually. Ah. But um, no, no, I, like, I try everything. And I have. A, I used to have this fear of straight lines. And I do things like that to sort of overcome my fear of straight lines, you know, to get things accurate. I'm a very messy painter and I just find it hard to... But that one came actually quite easily. And I did all these crate paintings, you know, these um, stacks of food crates. I did a, an exhibition in Dorset with them all. They're all two metres by two metres. And... Um, that was to overcome the fear of straight lines because there are a lot of straight lines in that. It looks almost like a bookcase, you know, lots of... And um, they were lovely, those. I, that phrase, a fear of straight lines, like, would, does that sum you up in any way, do you think? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. And when I used to grow my vegetables in Wales, I used to just put them, you know, I didn't put a string along to get them all in my husband. Um, used to tell me off for not having straight lines. And I said, well, who dug the bloody garden? Me. You know, I can have the wobble. Anyway, the, the um, slugs go in a straight line, so they're going to miss every other vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, there's a wisdom in, in chaos. I don't know if chaos is the opposite of straight lines or undulation or... Uh, well, there's no straight lines in nature. Well, crystals, right? Like yeah. when rock breaks, sometimes yes, it breaks true. in a yes, straight that's line. Yes, true, but very But rare. yeah, very few, that's for sure. And um, I love, um, you know, I love nature, decay. I love decay, seeing decay in nature, you know, mold, things that have gotten mm. moldy. I love rust, love rusty furniture. I love um, decay in many forms, yes. Really turns me on. For, you know, do, I've done uh, jobs where I've had to do a whole rusty room, you know, and uh, um, a prison camp where, mm. you know, everything was rusty. It's, I love rust. Yeah, it's such a rich oh, color or combination of colors. And, yeah, it's just yeah. texturally is fabulous as well. I've always yeah. been into decay and I love secondhand things. I've always loved everything old. I don't know where that comes from. You know, when I was down Portobello, I still got something I bought for seven and sixpence down Portobello when I was a little girl. I used to always go down the markets and always buy stuff, mm. you know, and old clothes. Well, listen, Jim, I think uh, Fear of Straight Line is a probably pretty good place to leave okay. this, don't you? Yeah. Thank you, really. It's a Sunday afternoon, a beautiful day. You could be painting, and I really appreciate you. I did you some this morning. Letting us hang out. Uh, I'm going to take a photo of that painting, although okay. I, I don't want you to sell it until okay. we talk. And um, wh where else can people find you? I'll put a link to that uh, YouTube well, video. Well, I've got my web page, which everything's Jim Halama. Halama, H-A-L-A-M-A. -A -A. Yeah. So is that uh, the name of That's a my mother's maiden name. Really? I use that because... My married name is Bramham, and, and I sound like a racing driver, Jim Bramham. <laughs> and is Jim your given name? Jim, no, Jim's a nick. I was nicknamed because I used to have a crew cut, you know, because this whole thing with men I didn't like. And I chopped all my hair off when I was about 14, and uh, so I was one of the boys. And on my first grass joint in a gymnasium in a school, it was a dance, some kind of party going on in a, in a art, art school, and I was sitting with all the boys and they nicknamed me Jim. And I spell it G-Y-M because I was in a gymnasium, basically. Right. So that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Halama. I love her. And here it, it's it, very suited because well, it's say, like it sounds, Alhama. Right, it sounds Alhama. very Andalusian. Yeah, and it fits me better. I like using her name anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's much nicer. And you seem to take after the circus people side of the family quite a bit. That's why I'm good up a ladder. I've got good balance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, jimhalama.com, is it? And then I've got Instagram, Facebook, all Jim Halama. All right. Or the Sandpit Gallery is right. one of the Facebook. Oh, mainly... and also, if, if anyone's headed to... Granada and thereabout, you should definitely stay at Jim's house, which is how I met her. It's on Airbnb. It's called the Camel Stop. Camel Stop. It's, uh, it's an amazing place that has a lot of character and uh, you, you can sort of secondhand stuff a lot of second <laughs> second some rusted stuff. furniture. It's fantastic. All right. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're going to die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you 
turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Dance into the ground. 